Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. Doesn't it feel like everyone is looking to Gen Z to build a better future? Luckily, Snapchat has seen that this generation believes it is their responsibility to drive change right now. The Snapchat generation cares deeply about their communities, and they're encouraging brands to take real action so they too can use their platform for good. You can meet the Snapchat generation and learn more about them by visiting snapchat.com generation. That's snapchat.com slash generation. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor with Adweek. And I'm Ko Im. I'm the community editor at Adweek. And today, our guest is our cover writer, Shannon Miller. David, do you want to introduce her? Because I feel like you've known her. For a I'm longer a, time. I'm a huge Shannon Miller fan. Some would call me a stan. I, uh, yes, it is my pleasure. Shannon uh, is an editor. Well, well, we'll have her discuss her day job at whatever level she's comfortable doing. But more more importantly to me uh, and to this program, she has been a contributor to Adweek and our creative coverage on our Adfreak blog uh, for quite a while now. Uh, she is my go-to person uh, about uh, geek culture, about uh, something that I cannot wait to talk about is representation in pop culture, in anime animation in video games, all sorts of great topics that are near and dear to my heart, um, and is just one of my favorite writers that I've ever gotten to work with. Shannon, it is such an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. That was such a nice intro. I don't even know what to say to that. Thank you. You've done so much great work, um, you know, writing about campaigns. And for this issue, which is our Beacon Awards issue in conjunction with Ad Color, um, you took on... Uh, one of the, the most important topics of our time, um, Black Lives Matter. So uh, we definitely want to get into that. Um, but how are you doing in general, first of all? Um, you know, I'm okay. It's um, it, it's a trial to kind of compartmentalize things. Um, you, Of course, you have the just sort of constantly cycling news cycle. And then you have your you know, your, your personal space in your everyday life. And those two can 
pretty much um, clash horrendously at times. But um, overall, I, I am feeling okay. I am really glad, um, for lack of a better word, that this was an opportunity that I got to take on, um, especially now when we're in one of the most critical civil rights movement movements uh, of our lifetime. Um, so being able to kind of look at the world with this new perspective has been really, really interesting. But before we, uh, I have, I have so many questions for Shannon, so many things I want to cover because it's been a while since we even got to talk. Uh, and I definitely want to get your thoughts, uh, on the podcast about, uh, some bigger, you know, just ongoing issues to your point. Um, but, uh, first tell us, uh, who you got to profile on the cover of this week's ad week. Um, I, <laughs> it's such a weird sentence. I got to talk to the three co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement. So um, Opal Tometi, um, Alicia Garza, and Patrice Cullors. Uh, and that was a very, um, <laughs> it was a wild thing to do that didn't really register until I had hung up on my third interview. Like it didn't even register who I was talking to until I was done. Um, but the, they are the three co-founders of the, um, what is statistically being called the biggest, uh, civil rights movement of our time. And they, I don't know if we're going to touch on this a little bit later, but they were just so incredibly down to earth and still so passionate about this thing that they started seven years ago. Um, so yeah, it, it was Pretty nuts. Pretty amazing. One thing I'm always fascinated about with movements, with uh, you know, especially grassroots movements, my fear, I think, every time I see uh, organizations like this or just movements where it's even hard to call it an organization, you know, sometimes it's it's very loose-knit, mm-hmm. and, and I get so excited by them, and then I also always have this fear that they will kind of implode under their own weight and scale, you know, mm-hmm. you know because sometimes, especially in the modern era, uh, in, in this social media era, movements just spiral so large so fast, and and they're so rarely centralized. Uh, mm-hmm. Did they talk much about that, about how you maintain any sort of level of cohesion or identity when you have literally millions of of people identifying with this movement? Um, they didn't really touch on that too much, and I think it's because... I mean, and this is not um, based on any insight that they gave, but just from sort of my observation... Personally, they don't really have the time to implode on themselves. Um, they, it, they're constantly having to address this sort of state-sanctioned violence that um, seems to be happening on a daily basis. And it, it's a lot of times when you kind of see these things, as you, as you stated brilliantly, that implode, um, there's a lot of outside factors. In, in those instances, whereas here they're always kind of they're always pretty much on the go. It, it's something that they have to constantly sort of stay intact in order to address these larger than life issues. So I imagine that for them, they don't really have the option or luxury of really getting to to cease or, or fall apart. Really, yeah. But they do um, in your interview kind of recall you know, moments like the George Zimmerman trial and, you know, emotions are definitely involved, especially when it's so personal. Um, We know that 
the award um, that they're given recognizes their power and their influence to be a force for change in the quest for DEI. But they also shared with you um, this kind of incredible uh, dichotomy, I want to say, of people who still don't believe that that Black Lives Matter. So um, how, how have things changed in 2020 with other brands and um, companies kind of getting involved in the conversation? Well, before 2020, uh, to declare that Black Lives Matter in sort of a corporate landscape was considered very radical. It was... It, that's uh, that is still being deemed a very political statement. That sort of explicit uh, wording that Black Lives Matter, because a lot of people misinterpret what what that means. Um, whereas they'll say like, "Oh, does that mean that no other lives matter?" No, that's not what they're saying. What they're saying is the world as is, as it stands, does not recognize Black lives. Um, as lives that are worth protecting or treating equally. So before, I, I think there was a lot of hesitance to align with a movement that ostensibly seemed like such a radical thing. Whereas with 2020, um, there's just a lot of factors that are keeping everyone at home glued to the TVs and really unable to distract themselves or escape from this looming reality of how terribly um, Black lives are treated um, on a daily basis. So now we're coming sort of to this place where silence isn't an option and brands are recognizing that their consumers are kind of looking to them to take a firm stance on something that is extremely important. Um, They're especially looking to brands that have benefited at all from Black culture, Black people, Black labor, um, or brands who have borrowed from Black culture, which if you look at sort of how things are handled in the social media scape, how a lot of Brands are real quick to turn to memes that are popular, popularized by Black creators. That's a lot of them. <laughs> so a lot of them have sort of felt the, the um, as some of the crea- some of the uh, founders mentioned, they sort of found buckled under the pressure of having to say something. Some of them are handling them well. Some of them are handling it not so well. Um, but I, I think that there is this understanding both in a private space and a corporate space that silence is just not an option now. And brands are kind of rising to that and either at at minimum putting out a statement or really um, putting their money where their mouth is and donating or creating spaces for black creators. So it's, this really interesting and surreal thing that rises a lot of emotions um, for me personally. And I think for a lot of black creatives who have been watching brands for a long time and seeing this sort of about face um, happen in a very short amount of time um, has been really interesting. 
I, I think the thing I that I mean I was gonna say I worry about I think a lot a lot of folks worry about is this apathy right like how we as mm-hmm. a culture a culture that's used to moving on from things very quickly you know whether it's a you know a meme or a TV show or a really serious movement that needs to be addressed like we're just used to things moving on and mm-hmm. we have this and and I've heard this a lot with the pandemic right when people talk about even though in a lot of states including mine uh, you know things have largely gotten worse. And yet there's just this kind of default attitude that like, well, it's been a while, so it must be getting better. And so mm-hmm. let's act as if it's getting better. And I've, I felt um, for, for the last few weeks that that's where brands and maybe culture at large was getting with police violence uh, and with, with BLM, uh, you know, in general. And you were, already, you were starting to see uh, the, the numbers go down of Ameri- the percent of Americans, which had been at a record high of supporting Black Lives Matter, was starting mm-hmm. to go down. And then, and then infuriatingly and tragically, it took you know, Jacob Blake getting shot in the back uh, mm-hmm. to kind of revive these conversations. And so I'm curious either from, from the perspective of the founders that you interviewed or just you know, for yourselves, what, you know, what do we do to keep these conversations? It's it's almost like school shootings, right? Like we haven't, mm-hmm. thank God, have not had a really terrible school shooting. So we haven't had schools largely. And, but it's been a while, which is going to falsely make a lot of people think we must have resolved it. It must mm-hmm. have gotten better. It hasn't gotten any better. Like nothing's no. changed. And so like how do we keep these issues kind of top of mind in a, in a marketing jargon? Uh, without having to have ongoing examples of people being shot you know, paralyzed, murdered on camera to to keep these things in the cultural mindset? Well, I think it starts from the top, really. Um, We we have our experiences and we have our sort of safe spaces where that is where our, our mindset is, that is where our point of view resides. And it is very hard if you are not a black American who lives this every day to sort of keep this in your purview 24 seven. So if you, if that experience doesn't exist at the top where people are making decisions, where people are crafting these campaigns, yeah, it's going to kind of wave in and out. So if we're not placing black leaders um, or black creatives in in positions of leadership, in these creative spaces, you're going to kind of see this sort of wax and waning when it comes to this overt support. So for for me, I would love to see more people, not just in the room, but leading the room at the head of the room so that we're seeing more increased visibility and seeing uh, more of the black experience imbued in these campaigns and, and marketing uh, ads and, and things of that nature. If we have that uh, experience constantly there, then we have, we stand a better chance of seeing it reflected in campaigns to come and not at a neck breaking pace uh, when tragedy strikes. Right. Now, if, that's not possible for whatever reason, um, then my suggestion is to, you have to look to where your consumers are. That means watching the news. That means 
not monitoring, like don't monitor us, don't spy on us, but like really engage with the communities that you're trying to reach out to and sort of get that experience. And that way it's at least sort of kept in in your environment for a little bit longer. Make it impossible to forget is really the solution. Um, Look at your boardrooms. What do your boardrooms look like? If they're all white, start over (laughs) and fix that. Because if that's what you're battling is that sort of implicit bias, it's not going to be fixed with a room full of white people. It's just not going to. So there's a lot of things that need to be done, but it, it sort of starts with sort of taking accountability in, in how we, you may have been implicit or, or rather um, complicit in sort of keeping out that experience and finding ways to fix it. Yeah, we had the CEO of Overtime, um, you know, write a piece about that kind of um, bias and how that leadership does need to come from the top. I think about the example of Nike, which has gotten some flack, right, for um, its lack of diversity on its board. But however, you know, one way that they're approaching it is in combination with Jordan and Converse brands, making that $40 million commitment over the mm-hmm. next four years to support the community. So that's a big thing. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of... Um I don't want to say a lot. There are, there are definitely brands that are sort of learning how to bake that into their business model. Um, ben and Jerry's is, has a, an extensive history of being involved in both racial and environmental justice. So it kind of seems like it comes naturally for them because it does. Um, they, it's, they've always sort of been about that talk and walked that walk. But one thing that really interest um really interested me was gushers general mills um it kind of started as like a little bit of a a joke with patrice because she said that that was the one brand that she didn't really expect to say anything not in a way of like they have this history of being on the opposition they don't it's just like you're we're not really checking for gushers like it's not I don't like think anyone's <laughs> expecting them to weigh in on anything Although, <laughs> like your delicious my, snack they were my elementary school snack so <laughs> right it's just like you know you're a delicious snack you're doing your job just be delicious snacks like we don't necessarily like no one's like you know vying for a, a statement from gushers but they still made one and, but on top of that, they uh, linked up with, I believe it was TikTok, to create um, this campaign called Black Voices Create, where they, are, where they are linking up with Black TikTokers to um, sort of speak on their stance on Black Lives Matter and speak about how the movement impacts them. And they are lending their platform to these young creators to be able to speak their truth. And that's extremely powerful. So even if, and they also made a monetary donation, um, Gushers and Fruit by the Foot made like a $200,000 donation to the NAACP. So even if you're not opening up your wallet, there are still ways that you can engage with what is happening in a way that's impactful and beneficial. And I think that brands are 
starting to see that there are ways that they can go about that, and, which is reassuring. Um, but there can always be more. So, so was there? You know, we could spend an hour or more, easily more, talking about uh, what you learned from your interviews with the founders of BLM. But what is going? What kind of stuck out to you as something that was either a surprise or you hadn't thought about that you, you have found yourself kind of going back to as you think about these interviews? The one thing that really struck me is how such a huge movement started from fairly humble beginnings. It, these three women have extensive histories in social justice um, that extend before Black Lives Matter was even a thought. So they have their specific spaces, they have their audiences, but it's not like they could have really just hopped on the horn and hopped on CNN to share their thoughts or share their insight when George Zimmerman was acquitted. They couldn't necessarily, you know, hop on the phone with, you know, our biggest black black leaders and, you know, get in there and talk about policy. They, they are these huge figures and yet they started this monumental movement with something that we all have access to, just their righteous anger and Facebook. That is something that really sat with me as a person who is not able to physically go out and march, um, as a person who does not have years and years and years of activism underneath her belt, to see these three women start something so incredible and larger than life with just the resources that they had with them in that moment with something that we all do, which is, you know, if we feel particularly impassioned by something, we kind of tweet through it or we hop on our uh, social media and just sort of speak our minds. That's what started all of this. And it's hard not to sit with that a little bit and really, one, be in awe, and two, realize that there's so much more that we could all do to make sure that the spaces around us are better. Um, that was just really something. And, and also just the universal experience of that Trayvon Martin moment. Because um, in talking to Opal, the one thing that she said was she worried about her brother when that verdict came in because the message that he was seeing sensibly was that his life didn't matter. And the night that that verdict came down, I was visiting my mom uh, with my husband. I was three months pregnant at the time. Um, the verdict came in and we were all just grief stricken. And I remember my brother, who was like 22, um, was saying that he was going to go out with his friends. And my reaction was to get angry. Like, you can't leave the house. Um, and because I worried that he was going out to hang out with his Black male friends, and now this world has been emboldened to not treat them with any sort of respect or, or worth. And so hearing her have that same kind of reaction really cemented how much Black Americans kind of universally grieved this one thing. Um, and she was able to take that grief and fashion a huge movement. Um, it's just 
wild to see three very accomplished women start something so huge with a tool that we just kind of use every day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Would you say that this is the, I don't want to say biggest, but one of the most impactful things you've um, experienced in in terms of um, interviewing and and putting this together? I know you mentioned kind of that, you know, um, out of the moment moment after you hung up um, the phone. and uh, I guess I kind of also want to ask, you know, what else are you trying to work on on a, you know, personal, professional level? Um, you know, we look at these kind of big leaders who have done big things for a while, and it um, sometimes, you know, it inspires us to to think about our impact. Yeah, it's it was definitely kind of a moment for me to sort of reassess what I'm doing currently. Um, I, for me right now, like my, my focus, my primary focus is um, just making sure that I am providing the best education for my daughter um, who we are homeschooling um, as is a lot of people and working pretty much nonstop. But um, as I, mentioned before, I have this podcast that has sort of um, been on pause for a while. I'm called Nerds of Prey, where we talk about uh, nerd culture from this perspective of three Black women. And so sitting there and kind of thinking about how I can use that platform to create change is something that um, has really taken up a lot of space in my mind. Um, So that in a creative sense is what I'm also focused on is seeing what I can do with that to sort of fashion that into a blend of um, the geeky stuff that I love so much and social justice. I don't know what that'll look like, but it's kind of fun to sit and sort of play with this model that we've been working on for years and turn it into something that can make a huge impact. So fingers crossed that that amounts to something. Um, But yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break and uh, then we'll be right back with more. We're all wondering about the future, but there's an entire generation already creating positive change in the world and they're urging brands to do the same. Meet the Snapchat generation and learn more about them by visiting snapchat.com slash generation. That's snapchat.com slash generation. We, we have reached the, the as a perfect segue for the thing I have not, I've been so eager to talk to you about, and I've been kind of waiting, not messaging you about it, because I, I kind of <laughs> wanted it to be on the podcast. And that is about representation in, in pop culture and geek culture, um, but, but really pop culture more broadly. Uh, and these days, I don't even know if geek culture is not, is, it, it feels like it's now mainstream, right? <laughs> like us, yeah. us, us nerds of the 80s and 90s have just taken over the world. About <laughs> time. <laughs> exactly. So the, you know, one thing that I, before we get into really uh, like content coming out right now, I mean, one thing I keep thinking about for children of the 80s might remember this, uh, is an episode of the Jeffersons called The First Store. It was from 1980, I think, but it was a, it was a flashback episode, and I saw it when I was a kid, and it just 
it just blew my mind. And and I've been mm-hmm. thinking about it ever since. I haven't seen it since I was a kid. I tried to find it online and you can buy it. I mean, I should go back and rewatch it. But it, it was mm-hmm. like burned viscerally into my memory because, it you know, The Jeffersons was such a funny show. And, and there were, of course, many really great themes uh, and really tough themes baked into it. But when I was a kid, I, mm-hmm. I just enjoyed that it was funny. And mm-hmm. they had a whole flashback episode about Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination and mm-hmm. which took place just as the Jeffersons were opening their first um, dry, I think, dry cleaning or laundry business. Uh, so the episode's called The First Store. And, you know, there's all this tension uh, going on around them. And their son really wants to be out there, really wants to be marching. And they're worried he's going to get caught up in police violence and get caught up in, you know, what could turn into a riot. And then mm-hmm. there's this scene that just, oh, it's just still, it's, it's like I said, it's just in my heart where George Jefferson finds out that Martin Luther King Jr. has been assassinated and he's standing outside of, uh, outside of his own store and he throws, uh, like I think a, a trash can or something, he throws it through his own window and like just yells, you know, you bastards and, and smashes his own window and then the next day, I think the the bank shows up and they're like, see the damage. And they're like, oh, I guess these animals, you know, got to your business, too. And it's too bad. And in the end, mm-hmm. he, t- he turns down the bank's money um, and basically says, I'll 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 do it myself. You know, I don't mm-hmm. I don't want people like you. Um, and I mean, it is it is some heavy, heavy stuff. Uh, but. As a kid, what the reason I bring it up is partly because I've been thinking about it a lot. Because in the end, you know, there are these these riots happening. The, you know, this the the protests keep getting uh, more and more intense, and their son wants to go out there and be a part of it. And exactly like what you were talking about, you know, they basically just convince him and almost force him to stay inside uh, out of just fear. But you know, I was who knows how young I was when I watched that very, and I'm I'm you know a, a white kid in in Alabama. And that episode just taught me so much in 30 minutes, right? Like, it gave me such a window, so much empathy into history, into something that I didn't realize was still such a problem, and shaped, you know, it's something I keep thinking about to this day. All of which is to say I'm a big believer in the importance of, uh, you know, of representation in culture and telling these stories in pop culture, uh, because I think they are just so much more effective than people give them credit for. All of that long segue, Shannon, because I want you to tell me, who do you think's doing it right? That's a really good question. Um, I think the most recent example of representation done well is um, Lovecraft, Lovecraft Country, which... Oh, I'm so glad you brought it up. I was worried you weren't watching it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, I Of course I'm watching it. it it's, I mean, it, it is such a weird lovely mix of history and sci-fi and does such a great job of contextualizing these really uh, real elements of Black American life um, into or contextualizing it with imagery that we can all connect with. Um, Like I was just really... Uh, taken aback by how effectively they explained what a sundown town was. And as a person in Florida, where there are still towns where um, as a black woman, I'm not about to drive through beyond 6 PM. It was just done so well. And Misha Green has this really um, potent gift of distilling um, painful 
Black American experiences in genre. It's just so well done. And it's um, annoying that I, I, I reviewed it for the AV Club. I've seen five episodes and I'm just waiting for people to get to episodes three and five. Um, and it's torture. Um, but that is a show that is really doing representation very well and showing how effective it is in storytelling and how important uh, it is to go with firm representation all throughout and not just resort to tokenism, essentially. Um, the, the, the show does this thing. I mean, it does so many things well. And it's a show that the, the first episode... I don't know about everybody else. I was left a little conflicted, not about the quality, not about the acting, or definitely not about the acting or the writing. Just like, you know, Watchmen, a lot of people make comparisons to Watchmen. Um, Watchmen's a very dark show um, and handles some very heavy themes, but through these really complicated metaphors of alternate, alternate realities, right? And... And, you know, it's like, it's almost hard to tell when you're watching Watchmen, like, wait, who is a good guy? Like, you know, because it's this very complex stuff. Lovecraft Country is just like almost silly in parts. I mean, it is silly in parts. It has fun. There's like, you know, without giving away anything at the beginning of the, <laughs> at the beginning of the, which I've already accidentally um, uh, hinted at, actually, there's a dance number, I guess I could say, a retro TV reference uh, at the beginning of episode two. Um, and, uh, so, I mean, it's funny. It's got, it's got a lot of lightness, I guess, in the sense of like, it's not a super heavy show, but at the same time, man, what they are, they took a racist, uh, you know, sci-fi and horror writer, uh, and they turned it into a, the first example you and I think of, <laughs> like good representation in pop culture. And the, yeah. that alone, woo. It's wild, yeah? Like, because it, it's a really good example of this sort of conflicting thing that Black nerds have, um, where they're constantly having to assess the things that they love, because there is a strong possibility, um, especially if it's older, that it was possibly made by someone who is racist, or involves, or has the involvement of um, creator or creators who are racist, and um, we kind of have to constantly make these concessions, which I think Tick did a really good job of distilling that experience, because that is a firm part of the Black fandom experience, is just this constant reevaluation of the things that we love. And it, it is such a, a weird thing to love this thing so wholly, um, and know that H.P. Lovecraft, who was a virulent racist or was a virulent racist, um, inspired it. Um, but the the thing that we've kind of had to learn how to do over time, and by we I mean Black fans, is decide when we are going to not separate the art from the artist, because it's a very, um, I, I don't like <laughs> that concept. That's a very... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A very privileged thing to be yeah, able you're really to washing separate. your hands of a lot there. <laughs> yeah, <you> <laughs> like uh, like that whole like, well, I love his art's doing a lot of work there, and um, you know, that's a very privileged thing. But um, there are times when 
you have to say, okay, I have to look at two truths, which is that H.P. Lovecraft is an immovable figure in sci-fi, and he was also a racist. And those are the things that kind of coexist. And I love that Misha Green is reclaiming this story that is ours and using this sort of immovable factor of sci-fi to tell that story. Um, Yeah, it it is very wild. And to kind of speak to the tone that you were mentioning, um, because, yeah, like, as you said, Watchmen and Lovecraft, two very different approaches. Um, One is very dark and one is very much, like, engaged in, like, old Hollywood action. Like, that chase scene out of that diner is the best sequence I've seen in a while. And I could talk about it for an hour. Um, so hint, hint, if you ever want to invite me back to talk about that, I can. <laughs> Bonus episode, just let's keep unpacking Lovecraft Country. I just feel like the third wheel, the... you guys are just totally geeking out. I know, I know. <laughs> well, and and Chan's, so Chan's so right that there's so much more. I guess the other thing, the thing I'll say for people who don't and who maybe are on the fence about it, but what what I will say as, uh, especially as a white person, I'm just trying to be pretty self-aware here, is that I... I think there's an easy way to have made this show that they did not take, right? They did not take the easy route of just ignoring the race, just just right around the racism or just ignore it completely. A lot of people have, right? There's been a bunch of Lovecraft movies. There's been a bunch of Lovecraft things, graphic novels, you name it. They're not racist. Like, you know what I mean? Like people just ignore it. And this, what's so great about this, and there's been a lot of horror movies, as any pop culture knows, or whatever, sci-fi, that's just like, and now the main character is black. And that's it. That's really all they did um, to change it. In this one, there's literal dialogues at the beginning of the show, maybe a little heavy handed, but I think they're important. You know, at the beginning of the show about that literally H.P. Lovecraft is racist. Like they live in a world in which his books exist and there are black characters debating, can, can I enjoy these books? Like one guy talks about his dad you know, I can't remember, like, basically severely punishing him when he catches him reading Lovecraft um, because of how racist he was. Um, but then the the empathy of this show, I, I loved uh, Lovecraft when I was younger. The more I learned about him and his problematic, his problematic stuff does come up in his literature. But, but you know, you can certainly love a lot about his show, about, I mean, about his writing, you know, in terms of the atmosphere and the creepiness that, but this idea, this dread of being an outsider and like coming into a town where everyone stares at you and everyone's got like everyone's weird and creepy and you don't know why you don't know why they're all looking at you and you're here because of whatever reason and you feel this ominous dread that you can't put your finger on that that something is going to befall you uh, you know i recommend the shadow over in's mouth if you haven't read it which is kind of the most famous example and um you know that by just literally taking that theme and showing that that is the everyday experience of Black Americans, you know, right? I was just yeah, like, because like, oh shit, that's so good, that's so perfect. Yeah, because we've been to that gas station. Like, <laughs> those gas stations exist all over America when you're traveling from college to home, and there's that four-hour drive that requires a ton of um, stoppage because you're driving through all of these sort of drive-through sundown towns, but you have to stop and get gas. Um, it, yeah, that dread is very real. That's why watching a lot of it, there is that horror um, where everyone's just like, oh my God, that is terrifying. And we're just like, yup, sure is. Because um, it does very much 
um, encompass what that Black American experience is like. So it's it's refreshing um, to kind of see this experience that in all of its um, horror, its natural horror, come to life in this way that we hope finally gets people to understand, <laughs> just to understand what it what it's like still um, for, for us to sort of navigate this inherently racist country. And um, for us, it's, or not for us, for me, it was kind of a nice, I guess break is the best word here, but you just in talking about that sequence again, you have that moment where Letty realizes that they cannot stay in that diner. They have that converging moment where they're talking about the White House and how the paint was used to cover up scorch marks. And then you have that immediate action um, where like you have the like just this rollicking chase scene. It's like, you know, this is a scary moment. Um, it's a very serious moment, but this is also a very fun way to um, illustrate this very real scary moment. So there's a lot of things happening here that I think are just very brilliant. And I do, um, in talking of them sort of addressing the complexity of that legacy, of the H.P. Um, Lovecraft legacy, is, um, it's funny because, yeah, it, it is kind of heavy-handed, but also it's almost like that sort of ripping off of the band-aid of like, okay, we all know why we're here. Let's just talk about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. Cause I was like, I hope they kind of address it tangentially. And then they're like, HP <laughs> Lovecraft is racist. <laughs> like, right at the beginning of the show. Yeah. Well, it's, like, it's pretty great. We, we unfortunately don't have much more time, but just in, and, and just to, I should explain to people like, well, tell us about your day job real quick. So people understand why I am, I am I'm just pestering you with a bunch of uh, pop culture questions. <laughs> Um, well, in during the day, I am the uh, newswire editor at um, a site called the AB Club. Um, we are a st- small staff doing big things, essentially. Um, and I, while I cover news on a daily basis, I also am a film and TV critic, um, also a music critic. So just over around, all around pop culture is sort of woven into my daily life in a very professional and obviously non-professional way, as you all heard me geeking out over like one scene for an hour. Um, so, so, yeah. so, so too, just now that we have that context, so people don't think like, why did he just randomly bug this poor woman who came on the, the uh, <laughs> so, because this is something again that you and I really geek out over, what are some of the other shows or intellectual properties, whatever they are, be they video games or graphic novels or whatever comes to mind. What's who's doing it right. And who would you recommend folks uh, check out? Um, you know, there's a lot, there's just so much content now. Um, if we're going to like old favorites and I say old only because the season isn't currently um, running or isn't new, but one thing that I've really loved was Netflix's on my block. Um, that is a very huge soft, um, soft spot for me. It's a comedy that centers on a Latinx neighborhood in California. And they are doing such a good job of providing 
well-rounded leading characters um, who live in this, what is considered um, a quote-unquote tough neighborhood um, run by gangs, but they're also very smart and passionate and geeky and um, are dealing with everyday teen things. And so it's a great um, bit of comedy that is set to a, what is considered a tragic backdrop, but they don't let tragedy guide their lives. They are very much normal teens and it is so well done. And there are three seasons. Um, So if you can get to Netflix to sort of chew through those, um, that would be great, stupendous even, because I love that show and I take every opportunity to talk about how great it is. yeah, I'm trying to like go through. <laughs> do we do we want to talk about Kipo? Oh my God, yes, we do. We absolutely do. Yes, Kipo. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, David. Another Netflix gem. Um, Kipo te- what's it technically called? Kipo in the Age of Wonder Beasts. Kipo Beast? in the Age of Wonder Beasts. Which, which, just by the name alone, you can tell this is a deep. Uh, rep- <laughs> <laughs> and tell how serious of, uh, of, of you know, what, what I love about this, though, is that it is a cartoon, it is a sci-fi, a post-apocalyptical, mm-hmm. lighthearted, very lighthearted cartoon. Yes. Um, so, again, not not where you would expect to find some really nice uh, and, and, again, just surprising level of great representation in there. And my and it stuck out to my kids uh, mm-hmm. and they loved it, you know, and they and they really kind of. you know what i mean but at the same time wasn't like it was direct without being heavy-handed um and i think you know the scene i'm specifically thinking of um yeah i mean i don't know tell us you and i've talked about the show a bunch but pretend we haven't and tell me what you love about (laughs) (laughs) another show that i will talk endlessly about if if given the opportunity so thank you um yeah keep on the age of wonder beast is a dreamwork show so the created by the same studio that created she-ra and um it is I mean, there's a lot that goes into the lore, but it's specifically it is about a um, girl who is who has to go to the surface world, um, who lives in a burrow, and um, this burrow is attacked by huge monsters or wonder beasts, and um, has to go to the surface world to sort of find her father and her community. And what is so great um, about this show, um, as David mentioned, is it does have incredible, incredible, inclusive representation um, that is not heavy-handed. The three leading characters are Black and uh, not related, which is very, very important to note because that is a thing too. Um, but yeah, what I love about it is that it is woven into the story in a way where they're not trying to give themselves cookies or kudos for doing something that should come so naturally. And um, especially with Benson, who is a queer character and um, very plainly states that he is gay, that is something that is huge for television in general, but especially for um, youth-leaning television. And um, I mean, if David will tell you, the music, (laughs) top-notch. Like, it is Steven Universe levels of great. So... Um, yeah, it's funny, incredibly witty. The Wonder Beasts, the Wonder Beasts are such an exciting discovery each episode. Uh, it's, it's hard not to have a really great time with a show, um, like this one. So yeah, Keep on the Age of Wonder Beasts, also on Netflix, two seasons available. I cannot recommend that one enough. 
Yeah, and and Shiro, which we don't even have time to get back into, but you know, mm-hmm. but both of those, uh, they're just a blast. They're just a super blast to watch. Um, I don't yeah, think absolutely. you'll ever feel preached to watching either. Um, and you know, it's uh, it just goes to show that you can you can have representation that all these things can be a part of your entertainment without it. It certainly doesn't ruin things. You know, it does it doesn't make no. it worse, and it makes it considerably better. You're right. And it's just like, you know, every other thing that you love, just great storytelling um, that reflects the world around us. So in a lot of ways, TV is way more exciting now than it was um, when I was growing up. So, yeah, there's just a lot of really cool things to dig dig into if you sort of dig outside of your purview and your perspective. Well, uh, we are out of time, which is a shame because, again talk to you forever about this stuff uh shannon so so great where can people find you to uh send you their thoughts on these shows and to offer you showrunner status on the reboot of the 90s x-men cartoon (laughs) um if you would like to extend a formal offer for me to head that up um you can find me on um on twitter i was about to get my old handle but it's um shannon l underscore miller um, so very plain, very easy for me to find. Um, you can also kind of look for me on the AV Club. Yeah. Or adweek.com. Yes. On your right. cover story. <laughs> on my very yes. important cover story. It was and such I a blast a to have fun. you on and um, um, such a pleasure to, to share um, your storytelling. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, uh, like I said, we are out of time. Thank you again, Shane Miller. Thank you to Coem, as always, uh, for being on. And uh, yeah, uh, we are we are out of time for this week. Our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by Coem and edited by Lane McGibney. Don't forget, to, uh, you can reach us anytime at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, because those reviews mean a lot to us personally, and they help new listeners discover the show. Uh, For Adweek, I'm David Greiner, and we will be back next week. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, Forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.